One of the reasons why I think the Bible is unlike any other sacred text, whether ancient or modern, is because it is full of stories about people like Jonah. If you were, if you were making the Bible up, you probably wouldn't include the story of Jonah in it. And not just because of the fish story, right? There are other sacred texts that have miraculous tales. That's only scandalous to a modern people. No, I think the reason why you wouldn't include it is because Jonah is not a great hero of the faith. Jonah's a rebel. Even when he finally does obey God, what we'll see is that he does it half-heartedly. His motives are really sordid. He, Jonah really struggles with compassion. This is not the sort of figure that you would expect to find as one of the key figures in your holy book. But you know why Jonah's in here? You know why the story of Jonah is in the Bible? Because the story of Jonah isn't about Jonah. The Bible isn't about Jonah. It's about God. And the story of Jonah is, more than anything else, a story that emphasizes the character of of God. It's a story that invites us to marvel at him, at, at God's patience, at, at God's power, at God's mercy, and how he manifests those things even through crooked sticks like Jonah. Maybe you're here this morning and you're confused about what to truly believe about God. I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of competing ideas even within Christianity about who God is and what he's like. And perhaps you wonder what God is really like. How can you really know? Well, the claim of Scripture is that what we find in the stories of the Bible reveal to us something of the true and living God. And here in the story of Jonah, what, what we catch is a glimpse of God's true nature. And what we're going to see this morning is that he's a God of incredible patience and power and remarkable mercy. And we're going to see this in three parts. And so I want to frame up this part of the story this morning in three parts. We're going to see Jonah's second chance, then Jonah's sermon, and then finally Jonah's scandal. So let's look at these one at a time. Chapter 3 begins with these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I think we, we probably need to slow down right here and camp out for a little bit. Because that is a stunning sentence. It's a stunning sentence that we shouldn't cruise past too easily. That the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah, as we saw in chapter 1, had defied God's command. He had disobeyed God's word. He fled. He was supposed to be going to Nineveh, and Jonah got on a ship going to Tarshish. He was a fugitive prophet who refused to speak God's message. Jonah is a bit like, uh, he belonged on the island of misfit toys, right? This dude is a misfit prophet. Prophets are supposed to obey God and to speak his word, and Jonah disobeyed God and refused to speak his word. He's a broken prophet. The storm and the fish could have been the end of the story for Jonah. Arguably should have been the end of the story for Jonah. 
And what we find instead is that instead of being swallowed up by the sea, the Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah back onto dry land. And so as chapter 3 begins, Jonah is brought back to the point of his origin where Yahweh patiently gives him another opportunity. From a, from a theological vantage point, if you'll let me play with the text a little bit, Jonah has been born again. He's experienced a new birth and a baptism. He's been given new life. If you read your Bible starting in Genesis, one of the things that you'll discover quickly is that Jonah isn't the first figure in Scripture to be given a second chance. This really starts all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in an incredible garden. He says, you have free reign of the whole place. You can eat from any tree in the garden save one. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the serpent shows up. We know that the serpent was Satan. And he tempts the woman. And the woman falls prey to the temptation. And she takes of the forbidden fruit and eats. Hands to her husband. He takes and eats. And what's remarkable is that the story should have ended right there. In the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And they don't die. They're clothed with animal skins. And they're removed from the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and be lost forever in that fallen state. God sends them out on a journey of redemption that will culminate in the seed of the woman bringing forth life through a redeemer. You go a little bit further in the Bible and you have Moses on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And even while he's up on the mountain receiving the words, what happens? The people grow impatient and they fall into idolatry. They, they fashion a golden calf that they begin to worship and call their God. And when Moses gets down from the mountain, he's incensed and he throws the commandments down. And that could have been the end of the story. But instead, God invites Moses back up the mountain, and the word of God comes to him yet again. God gives Moses the word a second time. You read a little further, and you get to the life of David. This is a man who's supposed to be after God's own heart. And yet, in a position of power, he exploits. He uses Bathsheba. He kills her husband in battle. And that should have been the end of the story. And yet the prophet Nathan, after confronting David, tells him, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. God gives David a second chance. The God of the Bible is a God of second chances. His word comes yet again. And I wonder, I just wonder this morning if, if somebody needs to hear that. Maybe you've been running. Maybe you've been refusing. And yet here you are this morning. You stumbled into this place. And what you need to hear is that God has not given up on you. That he hasn't sent you to the island of misfit toys. That he's offering you a second chance. The Apostle Paul asks in the book of Romans, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, 
in patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. In other words, don't exploit his kindness. Don't take the second chance for granted. If you are running this morning, return to the Lord and receive the mercy of a second chance. The text says that Jonah got up and went according to the Lord's command, that he turned from his obstinance and he obeyed God, finally going to Nineveh to fulfill his calling to preach. This leads us into the second part of the text, which is Jonah's sermon. Verse 3 says, Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. When the text says that, that, it, that the city was a three days walk, what it means is that it would, it would literally take three full days to journey all the way across the city. According to the historian Herodotus, an average day's military march was about 17 miles, which means Nineveh could have been as sprawling as 50 miles wide. In the ancient world, this was a colossal urban center. Chapter 4 tells us that there were over 120,000 people living in Nineveh. Leslie Allen depicts Jonah's scenario well when he writes, Jonah trudges for a whole day, and yet he has not reached the heart of the city. He feels small, one man against a vast metropolis, lost like a needle in a haystack inside this giant vanity fair, this Sodom of a city. The tiny figure feels he can go no further. He stops and he shouts the laconic message with which he has been entrusted. This feels like a daunting task, doesn't it? If I'm honest, I'm almost tempted to feel embarrassment for Jonah. Like, Jonah, you're going to march into this city of 120,000 people, and you're going to declare that in 40 days God's going to overthrow it, and you expect that to actually accomplish something? Is the Lord subjecting Jonah to humiliation? How is this ever going to work? It sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Perhaps you can see in your mind a street preacher. I, I, I think of certain groups that would come on my college campus when I was in college and they would decry the sin and the debauchery of, of the students as they passed by and they would call them to repent. And in my experience, it never proved to be an effective method. And so we read in the text that Jonah's to march into the city and to call out the word of God and we wonder, how's that supposed to do anything? And yet what we find is that when they heard Jonah's message, that miraculously something began to happen. That, that word began to spread, that, that neighbor began to tell neighbor of the message, and, and that it made it all the way to the king's court. And that the king, when he heard this message, proclaims a, a, a citywide fast that everyone's to dress in sackcloth and they're to humble themselves and to cry out to the Lord. 
Some have speculated that Jonah's physical appearance from being in the belly of the fish may have, may have been so terrifying that it actually got everybody's attention when he proclaimed the message. That, that, that maybe even the stomach juices like bleached his skin and that he looked ghostly and this is what provoked people to listen. I'm not lying, that's really in commentaries. Others have said that Nineveh had recently experienced some natural phenomena that might have been interpreted as an omen and that this opened them up to Jonah's message. And to be clear, God certainly works through all kinds of means. But, but I think the simple reading of, of, of the story is that their response is, is simply to the word of God, that God works through the clear revelation of his word. There's a mystery here, but also a reality. Billy Graham once said, I have found that when I present the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority, quoting the very word of God, that the Holy Spirit takes that message and drives it supernaturally into the heart. Have you ever stopped to consider the peculiarity of preaching? Maybe I think about this more than most because I'm a preacher. But it's, it's, if you take a step back from it, it is a bit of a bizarre thing, right? To gather together in an assembly hall on a Sunday morning and to listen to someone teach from an ancient text. Why do we do it? It's because we believe that something profound happens when the word of God is proclaimed. We believe as Christians that God actually attends to the preaching of his word. That, that, that his Holy Spirit is uniquely present when the scriptures are read and proclaimed. We believe that there's a divine authority, not in the person, but in the word. That when it is proclaimed, when it is preached, that God supernaturally moves in power through the declaration of his truth. Why? Because he said he will. Because he said, this is how I'll move. He said, I want you to preach. And when you preach my word, I move in power through them. The author of Hebrews declares, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is living. It's, it's powerful. It penetrates the soul. It exposes. It reroutes and it saves and so Jonah enters into Nineveh and declares a simple word of warning to the people, and revival breaks out. The Apostle Paul reminds us that in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, but that God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. In other words, the way that the world will come to know God is not through worldly wisdom. It's not through sophistry or sirens. That God issues his call through the proclamation of the word. Paul goes on and he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you. That's another word for the gospel. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ 
and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, I intentionally didn't come to you with powerful rhetoric. Paul says, I I wasn't impressive in appearance. No, I wanted to come to you in weakness so your faith would rest on the word of God. And that's what we see here with Jonah. We we discover this in chapter 4, but Jonah was even half-hearted in his delivery of the message. He didn't want them to heed it. And yet God still breaks through because there's power in the word of God. On January 6, 1850, 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was trudging up Hythe Hill in Colchester on his way to church. But it began to blizzard so bad that he wasn't able to get to the church where he was headed. And so he turned the corner and made his way into this small primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And he recounts that in that chapel that morning, there were maybe 12 to 15 people. It was a small gathering. The minister didn't even show up that morning because of the snow. And so a layman, a shoemaker, went up into the pulpit to preach that morning. Spurgeon says that the gentleman was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. (laughs) The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. The poor man preaching didn't even pronounce the words correctly. His 10-minute sermon consisted of the simple, repeated appeal to look to Jesus. And Spurgeon says that as he came to a close, the man looked directly at him and shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon says, after this moment, there and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The the great prince of preachers was saved through the fumbling efforts of an untrained shoemaker who was willing to get in the pulpit and declare the word of God. Friends, it's not the messenger, it's the message. It's not the packaging, it's the contents. Here's what this means for us. It means we should have so much hope. We should have so much hope. God doesn't need us to be intellectually astute. He doesn't need us to be impressive in our delivery. He doesn't need us to be professional pulpiteers or to have a seminary degree. You you don't have to know every answer to every question. If you'll just open your mouth, God will use you. If you'll just go forth with his gospel, he will go with you. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has decided in his wisdom that his spirit will move in power through the preaching of his word. The prophet Isaiah assures us that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth, says the Lord. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The word of God is effective. It's powerful. 
But I can't just help but wonder if we've lost our confidence in it. Do we still believe that God can change hearts, that he can bring revival through his word? Like what we see here in Nineveh. Do we believe that God can do that? I just want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, not to lose hope. That God can yet convict and draw through his word. That if it can happen in Nineveh, it can happen in Wichita. I wonder if there's someone that you love that you perhaps begun to give up on. Coming to faith or turning around. I think this word for us this morning helps us to say don't give up on them. That times of refreshing and renewal are still possible. That there is power in the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's not lose our faith in the word. Verse 10 says that when God saw the Ninevites' actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. That he relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. And that he did not do it. This is amazing. That God is moved with compassion. Sometimes maybe we read in scripture these warning passages. These passages of judgment. I used to read the prophets. I'd read Isaiah and I'd just go, man, this is a lot. There's a lot of judgment in here. There's a lot of warning in here. And then it dawned on me one day that God warns and he warns and he warns and he warns before he acts in judgment. But that the second someone shows the slightest sign of repentance, he's got a hairpin trigger to show mercy. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. That's what we find here. And one would think, one would think that the messenger who got to preach that message of revival would be excited about it. But what we find as chapter 4 begins is that Jonah is anything but. Look at it with me. Verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased. And became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And one who relents from sending disaster. Far from excitement about the revival in Nineveh, Jonah is angry about it. How could God show kindness to them? These Ninevites, just to be clear, they were a nasty bunch. I mean, they were barbaric. They were brutal. I want you to listen to how the prophet Nahum later describes this same group of people. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, 
galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Nahum pictures Nineveh as so full of death that people are literally tripping over bodies. The Ninevites weren't just an intolerably pretentious bunch like the Ole Miss rebels, right? It's rivalry week, you'll have to forgive me. Now, these guys were legitimately fearsome and foul in every way. How could God allow decades of cruelty and debauchery just be overlooked in a momentary act of penitence? Jonah's going, this seems so unfair, God. I want you to imagine in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attack on October 7th. I just want to try to bring this a little bit closer to home for us. I'm not trying to be political, okay? But I want you to imagine in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, a preacher goes to Palestine, stands in Gaza, and calls for Hamas to turn from its wickedness. And now imagine that in response to that preacher, they release the hostages, and that Mahmoud Abbas calls for a fast across Palestine. Would that be enough for you? I mean, 1,200 people were mutilated by Hamas soldiers. Children. Women. You just going to let them go? No recourse? Where's the justice in that? That's how Jonah feels. God, where is the justice in this? And the truth is Jonah knew the Lord to be like this. In verse 2, he, he recites Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And then Jonah, Jonah adds, and one who relents from disaster. That's who you are, God. He's not surprised by God's actions. He's just scandalized by them. How can God simply let them off? How can he just forgive without it costing anything? That's the question. I once found myself in a conversation with a neighbor. And this was essentially his struggle with Christianity. His question was this. How can somebody live their whole life for themselves? being sinful and selfish their whole life, do whatever they want, and then at the very end, if they believe in Jesus, they get heaven just like the person who lived their whole life for God. To him, it didn't seem fair. How can Jesus tell a thief on the cross, somebody who lived his whole life as a criminal, today, truly I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. How... How can Jesus just say that? This guy hasn't lived 20 seconds for God. What's well, because Jesus was on the cross bearing his sin beside him? 
Church, God doesn't let anybody off the hook. He offers forgiveness at great cost to himself. The wickedness of the Ninevites is not lost on God. He knows full well how evil they are. When he relents from destruction, he's making himself a cosigner on the cash advance, knowing full well they won't pay it. He's putting himself on the line with eyes wide open. God's self-revelation in Exodus 34 goes on to say this. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequence of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Translation, not one speck of injustice will go undealt with with God. None of it trickles through. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. What Jonah is wrestling with is, God, where's your justice? And when you begin to ask this question, the gospel is perhaps becoming clear to you because it ought to offend us like this. Mercy is scandalous. The mercy of God is scandalous. When you find yourself asking how, God, how you're close to the kingdom. For God to relent of his punishment, justice still has to be meted out somehow. Either at a later time or by God bearing the blow himself. But he can't just sweep it under the rug. And the good news for us is that we know how. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. The law condemns us in our injustice. It condemns us in our unrighteousness. And Jesus enters into this earth as a human being. He's born under the law so that he can bear its weight for us. So that he can suffer its penalty in our, in our place. Jesus came to suffer on the tree so that by faith in him we get compassion and not justice. The cross, in other words, is where justice and mercy kiss. But to experience this compassion, we have to trust in the word. We have to heed the word. We have to believe in the son. There's this interesting play on words in verse 4 of our text. When Jonah declares in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That word demolish is the word hapak. And it more literally translates as overturn. There are times when it is used to refer to destruction, but there are other times when it refers to a, a turning of events. Donald Wiseman points out that while it can be used to describe the destruction of something, the basic idea underlying the verb means to turn around or transform. There's the double entendre here. There's a play on words. There's a double meaning. Nineveh will either be turned over, destroyed, or it'll be turned around. Which will it be? It'll depend on how they respond to the word. And the same is true for you and me. And for our neighbors as well. Will you heed the word? 
Will you trust in Jesus? Will you come to the word made flesh who bore the penalty for you, who bore God's wrath in your place? If so, your life can be a massive turnaround. But if you refuse the word of God, at some point your life's going to get turned over. Take heed. Believe in Jesus. Experience revival. Let's pray together.